0: Well, good morning, beloved. How's everybody this morning? Good. Good to see you this morning. I appreciate you, sister. Yeah, you're all right. You praise God anyhow. I like that. That's why I like sitting behind you, because I know we're going to praise. That's why we <laughs> gonna encourage each other over there. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last uh, chapter in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be considering verses 16 to 20 this morning as we continue in our sermon series on our mission statement. As you turn there, and before we get to the sermon, uh, we've been practicing. We've been remembering, haven't we? First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 1 down to chapter 2, uh, a verse, however far you've gotten, right? So this morning we're going to do our homework assignment. We've got a couple weeks here to continue to review before we're back in First Peter and uh, picking up with the new verses for memorization. Is there anyone that would want to, Recite all or a portion of First Peter for us. Any takers. Did I see your hand? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an auction. If you move, you get called. Uh, I see. I see. <laughs> Anybody this morning? Okay. Well, let's. W- ah, right. in you? In you? Here we go. Y'all encourage India. Encourage <laughs> India. Here we go. That's what's up. Amen. Amen. That's what's up. That's what's up. That's what's up. So since he did all of chapter 1, anybody want to do chapter 2, verses 1 to 8? Anybody? Well, let's give God praise. That was wonderful. Amen. 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 Good job. Well, beloved, bow with me in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for this day that you have blessed us with, a day unique among all the days of history, a day we'll never see again, that we've never seen before, a day that contains fresh grace, fresh mercy, a mercy and grace sufficient for whatever Lord we face. And we thank you that you have appointed us to worship you on this day to come into your presence with your holy people and to lift up your name and to delight in you and to exalt you and to hear from you. And we pray this morning as we are gathered together in your presence that indeed you would speak to us, speak to us from your word. Encourage us, build us up, motivate us, instruct us, correct us. Lord, do whatever you need to do in our individual lives, and our collective lives as a church, to make us the people of God you have called us to be. Our lives are yours, and we would have it no other way. We are your servants, and we aim to do your bidding. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Richard B. Mullen was a multimillionaire. He was the president of Alcoa. Some of you are old enough to remember that company. And he and his brother, uh, his little brother Andrew, had a wonderful sort of routine together. Whenever, even as children, they would play the tag, you know, tag, you're it. And as they grew up, they never stopped playing tag. Whenever they would see one another, uh, one would tag the other and say, you're it. And, um, and then the next time, they would pick up that game, even as adults. It was a, a beautiful, cute little way of maintaining their boyhood friendship. On his deathbed, Richard, dying, drew his brother Andrew closer and whispered to him, last tag. Andrew remained it for another four years until he died. Famous last words. We're fascinated with last words. Sometimes last words can be playful, like Richard saying last tag to Andrew. Sometimes last words can be prophetic. Anybody know the name Nostradamus? Yeah, I was fascinated by Nostradamus as a little boy and drawn up into all of his predictions. Well, his last words were, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be. And he was right, finally. There are also defiant last words. People who seem to be shaking their fist at something even as they are leaving this life. There's a composer, Jean-Philippe Rameau, don't test my French, I think that's how you pronounce it. He was defiant at his bedside. The priest had gathered uh, to sort of do last rites or whatever with him and, and the priest had the nerve to sing a song to this composer and the composer says, what the devil do you mean to sing to me, priest? You are out of tune. Did <laughs> <Then> he die? <laughs> Speaking of singing, Frank Sinatra, old Blue Eyes himself, made the song I Did It My Way famous in 1969, became almost synonymous with the song. On his deathbed, he said two words, I'm losing. That seems like the natural conclusion to a song, I Did It My Way. Blues singer Bessie Smith, she died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. That's how you ought to go right there. And when Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, she gathered her family around, and they sang hymns together. The last hymn they sang was, "Sweet Low, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. But there was an exchange of words after that hymn. Her actual last words were, give my love to the churches, tell the women to stand firm, I go to prepare a place for you has the ring of Jesus, doesn't it? Last words reveal what's on our hearts. Reveals what's in our hearts. It's, it, it reveals oftentimes what's most important to us in that last, final breathing of life. And so it's appropriate that we think about not just our last words, but we think about Jesus' last words. What was on his heart? What was on his mind? What was most important to us uh, as our Lord spoke his last words on earth? Well, not before he died on the cross. Those would be appropriate last words too. But I'm thinking here of his last words on earth in the gospel, in the gospel of Matthew. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The famous section of Matthew's gospel is often referred to um, by missionaries and evangelists to exhort people to go to the mission field and things of that sort. And I think it has a lot for us as a church because in many ways, our mission statement as a church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. In many ways, our mission statement is a plagiarism of the Lord's words here in Matthew chapter 28. So look with me as I read this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we've been walking through our mission statement. We've uh, done two sermons thus far. We began just by thinking about those first two words, we exist, and thinking about what a, what a miraculous reality that is. That we exist by God's divine um, revelation, revelation of Jesus Christ, his son, is the Messiah. We exist by God's divine promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we exist uh, also with a kind of divine power to use the keys to bind and to loose and to stand in agreement with heaven who is binding and loosing along with us. And then we considered last week some ways in which us ordinary Christians can glorify God. We exist to glorify God. And we thought a lot about the issue of freedom, and the conscience, and how all of that impacts the way we do mission. That if we, in fact, would use our Christian freedom to build others up and to serve others, and if we would be mindful of issues of conscience so that it wouldn't cause others to stumble, we might use our freedom and respect conscience in such a way that we advance the mission of the church. Well, now we come to think more specifically about how we hope to, to glorify God— as it relates to making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we so have come to this text. And as we look at this text, I want us to um, sort of hang our thoughts on two points here. These two points are basically the whole point of the sermon. Point number one, don't let doubt keep you from mission. Don't let doubt keep you from the Lord's mission. Point number two, instead, Allow the Lord Jesus himself to lead you into mission. Let the Lord lead you into his mission. So we're going to be thinking in that first point about verses 16 and 17. And in that second point, we'll take verses 18 to 20. And may the Lord help us to be fully engaged in his mission as we do so. So don't let doubt keep you from mission. Look again with me in verses 16 and 17. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Three things that we learn about the disciples in those two short verses. Number one, they obeyed Jesus. You see that in verse 16? They go back to Galilee, which had been kind of a a hometown area uh, for Jesus' ministry, and they go to the particular mountain that Jesus told them to go to. The mountain is not named, but it's apparently clear um, which mountain Jesus had in mind. And they go there, just as he said. So we find the disciples after the resurrection obeying Jesus. Now, when they get there, who do they see? Beginning in verse 17, they see Jesus himself. And what's their reaction to seeing Jesus? The text says, they worshiped him. Just laying eyes on the resurrected Savior provoked them to praise and honor and, and delight in Jesus. And so we find them obeying and we find them worshiping. And then, right at the end of verse 17, Matthew leaves that cookie on the bottom shelf for us. And some doubted. It. it almost seems out of place. Right? Because if we are heroic in our thinking about our own Christian discipleship, and we are heroic in our thinking about our part in the ministry, we don't admit things like doubt. No, we are obeying, and we are worshiping, and we are ready to take the globe. Not quite. Some doubt it. The Bible just keeps reminding us of how human we are, of of how ordinary we are and of how frail we can be, right in the middle of obeying and worshiping doubt. Now, to doubt something is to be uncertain about it. When we doubt, we, we waver back and forth. You don't know if you should do this particular thing or go this particular direction And that uncertainty, that that wavering makes us unstable, it can stress us out, Um, it it makes us indecisive. So when we are doubting, we are just hanging suspended by a spider web between options. Not knowing which way to go, not knowing if the web's going to break. We're unstable. Now consider the power of doubt as a human response to God. Think about what we're seeing here in this text. Doubt will make you hesitate even when you're looking God in the face. Even when you've seen his miracles. Even when you have walked with him for three years. Even when you have seen the impossible become very possible in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be standing there looking at him, doubting. It's a powerful drug. We can obey Jesus. And we can worship Jesus, and we can struggle to trust Jesus, to believe Jesus. So understand this, right from the break, faith and worship and doubt can exist at the same time, in the same person, in the same group of Christians. There's a good chance you're worshiping this morning next to a doubter, next to someone who's uncertain next to someone who's hesitant, next to someone who's struggling to trust fully. But, but note this, Jesus entrusted, I didn't mean to put anybody on, on blast over there, <laughs> having a very personal reaction to the sermon this morning, praise God, praise God. Take note of this, Jesus entrusted his last words and his global mission and the entire future of the gospel and the church to some doubters, to some doubters, some hesitating, uncertain, obeying, worshiping Christians. The mission will not be completed by the heroic. It will be completed by us ordinary, everyday folks. Now, I want to encourage us this morning, if any of us have felt the tinge of doubt, we're feeling like doubters even now, we're struggling with certainty, I want to encourage us this morning, I believe God left this breadcrumb in here in his word for us to encourage us this morning. If we wrestle on any way, in any way, with doubt, you believe in the Lord, you worship the Lord, but you find yourself unstable sometimes, wavering sometimes. Don't you know some of the people use most powerfully by God had their bouts with doubt. God uses doubters as effectively as he uses the confident. Your doubt is no hindrance to God's work in your life. Let me give you some examples from the scripture. The prophet Jeremiah was receiving his call from God. God said to Jeremiah, I I knew you beforehand. I formed you in the womb. Said all these wonderful things to Jeremiah. The next thing out of Jeremiah's mouth was doubt. And doubt often comes in the form of excuse making. So the next thing out of Jeremiah's mouth, in Jeremiah 1, verse 6, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. How many times we have felt the pain of doubt in the form of this accusing voice that you're too young to do this. Not only Jeremiah, but Queen Esther. That brave woman doubted. When her uncle Mordecai came to her the first time to tell her about the plot to kill all the Jews and to tell her to go to the king. Now, eventually she went to the king, but if you know the story, she didn't go the first time. You remember what she said the first time? Esther chapter 4, verse 11. She told, told the servants to tell Mordecai, Listen, all the servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called. There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And Esther says this, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. He's like, Look, that man ain't called me. He ain't invited me into the court. There's a death penalty for anybody go. Anybody know that the fear of death will make you doubt? Gideon, the judge of Israel. He doubted God's call in his life too. His excuse was he was too insignificant. We find that in Judges chapter six, verse fifteen, where Gideon says, "There, uh, please, Lord, you have to be begging. With, you know how you beg with God when you're doubting, right? Please, Lord, let me talk to you for a minute. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh." and I am the least in my father's house. You're like, how am I gonna save the nation when I'm from this little raggedy clan, and even in my daddy's house, I'm the weakest in my daddy's house? Doubt, excuse making. And it's not just individuals, sometimes entire people groups. So if you know the story of Israel, you know that often they doubted. The nation of Israel was driven into the wilderness, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and while they wandered, even though they had seen God's deliverance in Egypt, they doubted. Numbers chapter 14, verse 3 says, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones, I love it, they'd be like, what about the wives and the kids? Our wives and little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? See, doubt will cause you to lose your mind too, Right? In Egypt, you were making brick without straw, slaves to a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and who was set on crushing you. And yet, out there in that wilderness, with a little bit of struggle, doubt. Did you bring us out here to kill us, God? Where you at, God? But the biggest biggest doubter of all in the Old Testament was also the greatest leader of all in the Old Testament. You remember the conversation (laughs) Moses had with God in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. I mean, if you got time this afternoon, and you do, take about five minutes. Take about five minutes and read those two chapters, man. It's it's a case study in doubting and bargaining with God. God comes to Moses in the burning bush. Moses sees the bush. The bush starts talking. Now, at that point, I'm already doubting. Right. Bush start talking. Bush tell him to take off his shoes. This is holy ground. Moses start talking to the bush. And then the bush calls Moses to go deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. Right. God speaking through the bush calls Moses to do that. First thing Moses says, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses is just like getting Gideon and others. I, I'm not that significant. I'm not that important. Who am I that I should go? God answers that. Three verses later, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses like, he ain't done yet. Then Moses said to God, look, but if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? Moses like, I just met you. I don't even know your name. What I'm going to tell them if they got questions for me about who sent me, right? God tells them, tell them that I am that I am, right? The whole conversation. Down to chapter 4, verse 1. Moses still ain't convinced. He's still doubting. Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, "But, but behold, look, look, God. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. That seems real rational, doesn't it? You're just going to show up. You ain't never been with the Hebrews. You've always been in Pharaoh's house. You done run because you killed a man. Now God says, go back and deliver this people that you ain't really been tight with. See, doubt can sound rational too, can't it? It can sound real rational. The Lord answers that. Moses ain't done. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. He, he seemed real eloquent with these doubts, though, don't he? I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I mean, Moses had four hits to chop the tarts, uh, chop, <laughs> to chop the charts uh, on the greatest excuse-making songs of all time. He's saying, "Who am I?" He's saying, "What's your name?" He's saying, "They won't listen." He said, "I can't talk." Right? He had all the excuses. Yet God made Moses the greatest prophet and deliverer in the history of Israel. God gave Gideon an even smaller army to defeat their enemies with. God told Moses, "Yeah, you stutter, but I made your mouth. I made your mouth." And God led. the the children of Israel through the wilderness into the promised land just like he said he would do despite their unbelief, despite their doubts, despite their complaints. And God used Esther to save her people and to eventually rule an empire. Doubt is a powerful drug, but God is a much more powerful God. Your doubt is no hindrance to God's work. And there's no reason to not enroll in God's mission. So let me give you three applications as we finish this first point. What do we do then about our doubts? Well, number one, confess your doubts. It's a very human experience. And, and because the Bible generally does not look favorably on doubt, I think that's caused a lot of us to pretend we don't have it at any time, right? But here, I do think the Lord has left this hanging sort of sentence there at the end of verse 17 just as a way of nodding at us and winking and saying, I I know your frame, that you're but dust. I know you're human, right? So us hiding doubt is not hiding information from God. He knows that about us already. Even those who walk the earth with him, the, the 11 remaining apostles are looking at him and doubting. How much more so that from time to time we might struggle with doubt, uncertainty, hesitation. And did you know that you can can come to God with your doubts? You can confess them? I love that prayer in the New Testament. Lord, I believe what? Help my unbelief. I believe in you, Lord. Lord. I I really, in one sense, don't doubt that you're God. I don't doubt that you love me. I don't doubt that you're sovereign. I don't doubt that you're good. And yet, at the same time, there's this unbelief in me, this struggle, this uncertainty that, that maybe you just won't look at me favorably. Maybe you won't consider me in your mercy. Maybe you won't act in this particular way that I feel like I need you to act, right? So faith and doubt can coexist in the same person in the same people, and the thing to do is not fake it till you make it, but confess it so God can bless it. I made it up right there, right there, right there. <laughs> Y'all silly. Y'all silly. So the first thing to do is confess your doubt to God. Number two, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. If doubt is uncertainty, right, then why should we treat it as certain? If doubt is wavering, then why should we try to stand on it? We need to doubt our doubts. We need to do that long enough to remember That God does, in fact, use the insignificant, the tongue-tied, the weak, the small, the young, and the fearful. We need to not give our place, uh, give, give doubt the place of authority in our lives. And too often, that's precisely what we do. No, 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 no. Speak to your doubt. You're uncertain. Therefore, you can't be trusted. God is certain. Therefore, he can always be trusted. Doubt your doubts until you become more and more certain about the character and the goodness and the work of God. Number three, then disobey your doubts. Confess your doubts, doubt your doubts, then disobey your doubts. Once you've confessed your doubts and doubted them, put your faith into action by doing the work God has prepared for you. Faith without works is dead. Doubt thrives in dead faith. But an active, active working faith puts uncertainty in its place as God works through our obedience, even though we're struggling with trust. When in doubt, obey God anyway. God's given you that gift. You are uncertain about the using of it. If God gave it to you, you know he meant for you to use it, to use it for the blessing of his people and the building up of his body. Use it anyway, despite your your doubt. God has put you in a certain position in life. You know that you are, at bottom, a steward. And it's required of stewards to be faithful, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Whatever position God has given you in life, exercise that position as a good steward to God. Yet you showed up with imposter syndrome. You showed up with other words for doubt. Obey God anyway. Use your gifts anyway. Put your faith into action and do what the Lord has called you to do. It didn't make sense to walk around Jericho seven times and blow the trumpets. I'm sure they would walk around. It's like man, I don't, I do I don't know about this, brother. All <laughs> about this, but they walked and they blew the trumpets when obeyed, when 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 called for, and God worked. Alright, so, hey, just get in line and march blow the trumpet when he calls you to. Trust God to work. Listen, our usefulness to God's mission is not determined by our age, the prominence of our families, the eloquence of our speech, or anything like that. Listen, God's use of us does not depend on our usefulness to God. God's use of us does not depend on our usefulness to God, being used by God does not require us to be sufficient without God. It's not how that works. So we need to understand this to to really embrace our mission because many of us are feeling like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the mission of ARC, all this stuff y'all talking about, that's too big for me. I'm too small. But beloved, that's all God has is little people. Small people. He entrusted his mission to doubters. That's us, strugglers. And he will use us if we are faithful. Doubt your doubts. Obey God anyway. Which brings us to our second point. Our second point here is instead of doubting the mission, instead what we want to do is let Jesus lead us into the mission. Look with me in verses 18 to 20. The Lord then speaks to his disciples. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we see three things. Uh, The Lord Jesus speaks to them about his authority. He speaks to them about our assignment. And he gives them his assurance. You see, he says there in verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That reminds us of the Old Testament visions of, uh, of, of the Messiah, like that in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 to 14, where Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming to the ancient of days, which is God sitting on the throne, and receiving from God glory and majesty and dominion and power. Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm that Messiah. You read Daniel 7, you're reading about me. All authority. See how universal his rule is. In heaven and on earth, there's no place where he does not have absolute authority over all things. Now, he says this to doubters. Why do you think that's helpful? Why might it be helpful? Talk back to me. For Jesus to say this to people who are sitting there doubting. Anybody? Makes it easy? I heard something else over here. He's giving them reason not to doubt. Right? He's rooting their confidence not in themselves but in him. Yeah, you, you saw me and you started to worship, but verse 18 says I, you still didn't close the gap between us. I had to come to you. I came to you, and the first thing I want to tell you is something not about you and not about the world, not about your circumstances. What I want to talk to you about is who I really am. And I am the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing I don't have the right to do. There's nothing I don't have power to do. That's what authority is. It is power married together with right. There's nothing I don't have the right to do. There's nothing I don't have the ability to do. All authority up there, all authority down here is in one person, me. Stop looking at yourself. I'm about to lead you into mission. One I need you to look at is me. It's Jesus. I'm about to give you something that is as big as the globe. You ain't going to do it looking at each other. You're not going to have the confidence you need looking at each other. You're not going to have the certainty that you need looking at each other. But if you want confidence, if you want certainty, if you want your mind cleared of all the, the clutter and the distraction and the things that bog you down, look at me, Jesus says. Raise your gaze. Until you see me, all authority in heaven and on earth. That's meant to calm the human heart. That's meant to soothe the worrying mind. That's meant to steady the wavering feet. That's meant to give certainty, big chested certainty to those who doubt. Jesus says, Look at me. Don't look at yourself. I have all authority. I'm the reigning Lord. I'm the reigning king. Your faith, your hope, your ambitions, your desires, your plans, my calling, especially root them in me, not in yourself. So our mission here is to make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question as an application. When it comes to making disciples, who are you looking at? And who are you pointing them to? See, because part of what causes us doubt, when, when we have this notion, somebody tells us that we should be making disciples, uh, doubt starts speaking, and we start thinking things like this, I don't know enough. Right? I, I don't, what if they ask me a question I don't have an answer to? Right? I don't, I don't know enough. And, and you know, what if, they see, what if they see my weaknesses? What if they see my contradictions? What if they see my doubts? Right? Well, the answer to those questions is, it ain't about you, and they shouldn't be looking at you. One of the best compliments you could get as a Christian, helping someone else grow as a Christian. They may come back to you some years later and say something like this. I thank you for, you know, investing in me, blah, 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 blah. And they say something like this. You, you never pointed me to yourself. You always pointed to Jesus. Oh, that's the best we can do. That's the best we can do as disciple makers is just keep pointing people to Jesus away from themselves, certainly away from <laughs> ourselves, and say, hey, if there's a question you got and I don't know the answer, we'll learn together. Right? Because Jesus is discipling us both. We both are growing in the Lord, right? And so Jesus says, look at him, point to him, root our authority, root our activity, root our mission in him. That frees us, beloved. That frees us to be the ordinary people that we are, doing something in the hands of an extraordinary God. So when you think about making disciples, who you got them looking at? Is it Jesus or you? Who you're looking at? When you hear this call, is it Jesus or yourself? Let Him lead us into mission by raising our eyes away from ourselves to focus on the one with all authority. I notice the assignment that He gives Him in verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, there, based on that authority, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Four things here that go into this assignment. The first is go. Going. It's a command, it's, a, it's an assumption that they are already in motion. The word go means to move from one point to another point, right? We are to move, as it were, as a church. Here he says to all nations, we're to move across the globe. The Lord doesn't want his disciples comfortable in one spot. A still church is a disobedient church. It's meant to be a moving organism. It can be across the street to a neighbor, or it can be across the globe to a nation. Right? It it, it can be to the next door neighbor or the the around the globe nation. It, It could be five feet away or 5,000 miles away. doesn't matter. We are meant to be moving to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us here. And so the question becomes, you have any plans for moving this year? In all your resolutions in 2024, are your resolutions, at least some of them, aimed at moving in a way that advances Jesus' mission? Are, are all your resolutions and my resolutions aimed at creating a sedentary, sitting, still lifestyle? What are we doing? Are we moving? Are we going? We think of Tasha and Dennis. We're praying for them right now. They're uh, on the continent uh, encouraging missionaries there, hel- helping to build that team, encourage that team. As that team looks to evangelize and, and plant churches among a, a, a Muslim nation. They're going. Dennis is perhaps one of the best examples in our church family of somebody who's embraced this call to go. If it's coffee and convo on a Thursday night or it's to a a foreign country for two weeks, the brother and his wife and his family are goers. We should be too. Uh, We got a job fair coming up in April. It's our annual job fair. We celebrate our uh, anniversary as a church. We try and serve the, the community. That's an opportunity to go not across the globe to Africa. It's just over there on Q Street. Right? But we go and we, we get employers there and, and, and we invite the community and usually 350, 400 people come out looking for jobs and, and in classes of about 20 each, we share the gospel. We're trying to go. Maybe you're leading a workplace Bible study or an evangelistic small group in your home. Uh, maybe you're inviting people to Thursday night Bible study at the library. Are you moving this year? Do you have plans to go this year? Because failing to go is failing to be on mission. And notice what he says next. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, just to be real clear here a disciple is a student follower. So a disciple is a student follower. It's not just a student, as in a high school classroom, you come in, you take that class, algebra from nine fifteen to 10, and then you leave that class, you go to another class, and chances are you probably don't think about that teacher or that class until you come back to algebra. It's a student follower. It's more like an apprenticeship. You, you enroll in not just the subject, but you enroll in the life of the one who's teaching you. Right? So we're making disciples of Jesus. We're not making disciples of the Beatty. not making disciples of Tim. We're not making disciples of, of, of Tiffany. We're not making disciples of, of folks in here, but disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means what we want to do is enroll people in his classroom and enroll people in following Jesus, to sort of enter an apprenticeship to Jesus, learning how to live from the master. That, that's what we are meant to do to follow and learn, to learn and follow, then we're in the life of discipleship. Now, a Christian is a disciple who makes other disciples. A Christian is a student follower who makes other student followers. If you're a Christian, but you don't make disciples, you might not be a Christian. Something to think about over lunch. You certainly are not obeying Jesus' command here in verse 19. So it may not be all as drastic as you're not a Christian, but it is still nonetheless serious. Because Jesus seems to expect that if we follow him, the main thing we're doing is helping other people follow him. And so the question becomes, is that us? Are we doing that? Are we making disciples? Not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ. And there is a massive difference, Beloved. There is a massive difference. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon, who had a a a famous sense of humor, loud, boisterous, big guy, prince of preachers in England, 1800s. Uh, He's walking down by the Thames River, and um, some guy comes up to him. He's clearly uh, a drunk, an alcoholic, and he's like he's been in the in the streets for about three days. And he comes up and says, "Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? I'm one of your disciples." And Spurgeon, without missing a beat, said, you must be one of mine because you certainly ain't one of Jesus. <laughs> no, we want people apprenticed to Christ, learning from him, growing in him, not in us. Notice the third thing in this assignment, baptizing them. So we go into the world, we make disciples of all nations, every ethnic group, every background, uh, every culture, Is meant to come and worship Jesus, and we are meant to go and share the gospel with them and help them to become disciples. And I should just say this as an aside. uh, Maybe it will be useful at some other point, but just to make the obvious clear. If you're a church that has a vision for reaching all nations, you can't be a church that allows racism and bigotry and any other kind of prejudice. You can't. The, The two just don't go together. Okay? So that's free, all right? That's free. But baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting. Why does Jesus, of all the things he could add here in the mission, why does he give baptism? Why does he say go out there and baptize folks of all the things that he could have required? Well, I, I think it's this. It's because baptism plays at least three major roles in the Christian spiritual formation, in the disciple spiritual formation. First of all, it is in the Bible, baptism is the public profession of faith. not not coming down here or responding to an altar call or things of that sort, although that's fine. In the Bible, the way you made it clear that you were serious about following Jesus, that you were a student follower of Jesus, is you got baptized. And so this is the rite of initiation. This is almost like the rite of passage bit um, where you you sort of get initiated as a member of the church. And so in that way, he is marking his disciples off um, by this public profession of death through faith in him, and of resurrected life through that same faith. Secondly, it forms us because baptism is also that point in time where we declare definitively that we belong to Jesus. Right, We take upon him, us, his seal. So when he says here, baptize him in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, He's saying, declare the Lord's ownership, declare God's ownership over you in baptism, in the name of, belonging to this one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus has purchased us with his death, burial, and resurrection. God has assigned us to salvation and sent his Son, and the Spirit has sealed that work to our souls um, in regenerating us and keeping us until the day of redemption. And so now our life, body and soul, belongs to God. And so we're being baptized, it's like putting on one of those T-shirts that says, property of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We belong to him. And this ritual makes that clear to us, or at least it ought. And number three, this, this ritual of baptism is a means of grace to us. It's a means of grace. It's a way for us to experience God's grace over and over again. So baptism is a bit like the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper, each time we take the supper, we're meant to eat the supper in faith. We're meant to remember what Jesus has done for us and to remember that we believe in him and to remember that now we share in his life as as surely as we are eating the body and drinking the blood. We are united to him. We are participating with him. Well, baptism does the same thing except that it's not an over and over thing you do. It's you keep looking back to that day when you professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, and you are remembering that you died and were buried with him by faith, and you were raised together with him by that same faith. This is why when we have baptism services, we we shouldn't think of it as, I'm going to see so-and-so be baptized, though that's great, and encourage them. You should do that. You should also go and remember your own baptism. And remember the work that God has done in your life, which you have professed in baptism. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why I don't believe in the baptizing babies, in infant baptism or Uh, paedo-baptism. Many, many, many lovely Christians grew up in in Presbyterian homes or other kinds of Reformed homes. um, And their parents understood that keeping covenant with God meant um, baptizing their children as infants. And I get that, and I understand that. I don't believe that's what the Bible actually teaches, though. And one of the reasons why I'm convinced of that is, for those persons, baptism doesn't work as a means of grace the way it ought to. They can't look back to baptism as the moment where they profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to look back to baptism as something their mother and father did in faithfulness to God for them, but for which they really had no part in. Right, And so when we observe that grace and remember that grace in baptism, it's kind of like wires are not connected because the sequence is out of order. First comes the preaching of the gospel, hearing it with faith and conversion, then being baptized and admitted to the church. Right, our Presbyterian friends, our Dutch Reformed friends say, well, it, those things don't have to go logically in that order. One can be baptized and come to faith later. Uh, I just think you're doing violence to the Bible at that point. Right? Anyway, that also is free. That's an aside. (laughs) What are we to do after we baptize the nations? Look at what Jesus says there. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, this is the point where the Lord's mission and the mission of our church becomes transformational. This is the point where the dynamite explodes, right? Because if we commit ourselves individually and together, to obeying everything that Jesus has commanded us, there's no way for us to enroll in that without it changing us. There's no way for us to commit to obeying Jesus and then actually trying to obey Jesus and remaining the same. It just doesn't work that way. There's new life in us, right? There's a new person in us, Christ, by his Spirit, And the Word is in us, and the Word is working, and it is working transformation. Now, we may not always see it all the time, but rest assured that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion the day of Christ Jesus. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the means by which God does that is the simple teaching of obedience to his Word. That's where the explosion happens. When we read his word and obey his word, he changes us. So now I'm going to talk to doubters again. So whether or not you can participate in this mission. Let me ask you this question. What do you need in order to help someone else follow Jesus, in order to disciple someone else? What, What do you absolutely need? Really only two things. You need to be able to read or to be with a group of Christians where at least one Christian can read. And you need to be able to obey. That's it. It is marvelously simple. You don't need a wall full of books. You don't need theolog- theology degrees. You, you, don't, you don't need a whole bunch of fancy stuff. You don't need gadgets on your phone. Really, if you want to obey Jesus, Jesus has divine, de- designed the faith in such a way that if you can read, right, and, and you can say, yes, Lord. You can be a disciple and you can make a disciple. That's all it is. That's all it requires. Is, is sort of to get together with another Christian and say, let's read the Bible. Read a chapter. What did you see? What did you see? What, what, what struck you? What, what did he mean? What, what are we to obey? Okay, let's go obey. Come back next week. Let's read again. Did you obey last week? Okay. And reload. That's all it requires. So, so probably in this room Everyone above five years old has all the equipment they need to make disciples. Because all you need to be able to do is read the book or get with somebody who can and obey the book. Do what the Lord says. Show of hands, how many of you can do those two things? Amen. Show of hands, having read Jesus say, make disciples and teach them, how many of you would do that. Amen. Amen. That's all you need. To read and to teach to obey. Now, teaching is more than just talking. It also involves setting examples. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. If others follow what they see in us, they should be following a, liv- a living demonstration of Jesus' teachings. Now, it's a demonstration not in perfection, but in progress. It's in, it's in progress, not perfection. So if I say, follow me as I follow Christ, I do not mean thereby I am just like Jesus. You're going to see some places where I'm not like Jesus, right? Right? And, and if I'm watching your life, I'm going to see some places where you're not like Jesus. But Paul says over in First Timothy chapter 4, let your progress be evident to all. He doesn't say let your perfection be evident to all. He says let your progress be evident to all, right? So that means he's writing to a preacher. That means the pastor is one of those persons who's not saying, I'm so good, I'm so perfect, I'm so slick, I'm so fly, you know, just look at me, look at me, look at me. The pastor is saying, hey, listen, last week I was cross with my wife. I shouldn't have spoken to her that way. I just, you know, we were arguing this morning. I had to get up here and confess before I preached that I was unkind. About, now, that didn't happen last week. It has happened. didn't happen last week, right? It means it gives us grace to sort of let the, let the faults hang out. Let the weaknesses show. Stop putting on fig leaves and covering up and hiding. No, 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 it's progress, not perfection. So we should be saying to each other, follow me as I follow Christ. And if I don't follow Christ in some particular way, you go ahead and follow Jesus because that's who we're pointing you to, right? And then you can help me follow him in that way, right? We can do this, beloved. We need to do this. The church is meant to be a Bible-reading, Bible-obeying movement. That's all it is. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we teach the Bible, we apply the Bible. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and that sounds boring to you, I mean, we could try to make this more exciting for you. But, but I, I, I can tell you two things if we try to do that. I can tell you two things. One is compared to the entertainment you get in the world, we would look really corny. We would. If, if we tried to entertain you the way you're used to being entertained, you're going to be like, man, them Christians are whack. It's true. It's true, Right? Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. We, we might, we could try to get slick and entertain you and make this more sort of engaging for you, right, rather than listening to a 50-minute sermon, right? We could get, cut this down to 15 or 20 and have some lights and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. If we win you with that, we have to keep you with that. So, so we're committed to being boring, right? Not because we think boring is somehow holy. We're committed to what you think is boring, being that because you don't yet have a taste for the things of God, right? So what you find entertaining oftentimes, and we're saying this as people who, who, who are in the same spot, right? What you find entertaining oftentimes is stuff that Jesus condemns. What you're excited by oftentimes are, are things that God says you shouldn't do. So if we're trying to satisfy that, we would just be leading you to destruction. So, so we do plain things like sing hymns, read the Bible, somebody talk about it for a really long time, because in this book is the word of life. In this book is real joy, real satisfaction, because in this book is where God reveals himself to us. If you would know God and be excited about that, then come on into this boring place with us. Come on and peer into God's Word and wonder at the mystery of somebody who could stand up in front of others and say, I have authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, that's worth thinking about. That's worth thinking about. Stop thinking about Cat Williams. (laughs) Wasting your time, man. (laughs) Think about Jesus instead. Way better use of time. And when you discover him, way more exciting. I mean, think about what we read in verses 16 and 17. I'm going I'm to wind up here real quick. Think about verse 16 and 17, what happened. These grown men, rough-hewn men, fishermen with callous hands and weather-beaten skin, uh, who've just seen somebody crucified um, days, weeks earlier, um, beaten and whipped and, and hung on a cross, right, who ran away from that scene because they didn't want that to happen to them. These grown men, roughneck men, they go to a mountain and see another man, and they worship. What compels that? Because men don't normally do that. Men get groomed to think, I must be the man, right? And even if, even if I like you, even if I think you like that, I ain't going to turn into no groupie out here. That's how men think, right? Men's like, nah, he all right. You know, Jordan was good. He all right, he all right. He all right. In my day, I, I could at least play with him. <laughs> That's how men talk. Y'all know it? But these men went to a mountain, climbed a mountain, saw Jesus, and from a distance worshipped Jesus. What compels that? What makes grown men fall to their knees and praise another man? It's that he's God. And they knew it. They saw it. Oh, beloved, we would have you come meet Jesus for the God that he is, and he reveals himself to be in the Bible. He's the one who has loved you from before you were born and who died for you on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and was raised from the grave so that you could live with him forever, forgiven by God for all of your sins and declared righteous by God because of your faith in Jesus so that you would come to discover life that really is life and enjoy it to the full. That's what's on offer to you if you confess your sins to God and put your faith in the Lord Jesus and become a student follower of Jesus. Eternal life in an everlasting kingdom where you will never be bored again. Take it. Believe on Jesus. Put your faith in him. Grab the kingdom of God as your own. Lay hold to that life that really is life. For soon this life will be over. And it will either be God's judgment or God's love. Choose life today, beloved. Choose life. My Christian friend, let's end on verse 20. See here the Lord's assurance. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The text does not say he is with us sometimes. I love that. It doesn't say the Lord is with us when we're good. It doesn't say that the Lord is with us when we feel like he is. It says the Lord is with us always, even to the end of the age. Pick your moment in life. Pick your bad moment. Pick your good moment. Pick that moment you don't want to tell nobody about. Pick that moment of most severe doubt. Let me tell you one thing that was true. The Lord was with you. He was with you. He's with you in that moment of grief. He's with you in that moment of suffering. He's with you in that moment of temptation. He's with you in that moment of triumph. He's with you in that moment of confusion. He's with you in that moment of success. Every moment of your life, Jesus here promises, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, to be with you even until the world is over. And if he is with us, beloved, he is for us. Oh God. God's not a bystander in your life. He's not just watching you go through. We feel that way sometimes, don't we? Lord, I'm down here going through. Are you just watching me? Help me. Which, beloved, is a good biblical prayer. Help me. I'm hurting. He's not just observing your life. He's not just bystanding to your life. He's not just note taking and record keeping and mm, she did this today. That, that, that's not what he's like. If he is Emmanuel, God with us, he is also God for us. He's for you, beloved. Be assured of that when you embrace his mission. Be assured of that as you live for him day to day. Be assured of that every moment of your life. Jesus is with you and he is for you. Be confident, not doubting. Be certain, not wavering. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is and what he has promised. Beloved, we set this series up with some questions, and we've been trying to move ourselves down the spectrum, if you will, of embracing the mission and being equipped for mission. And I just want to end by answering a couple of those questions. One of those questions is, why are we here? Well, the only reason to be at any church is to help others be disciples and to be a disciple. Now, if you don't want that here... Praise God. There are other faithful churches in Washington, D.C., and the area, or perhaps the city that you come from, that you can join. But understand that any faithful church you go to is going to be about this, because that's what's in the book. It's about making disciples. So if you don't want to make disciples, again, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I really a Christian? Because if I have come to know Jesus and to discover Jesus as my Savior and to love him, why would I not want other people to grow in their love for him? So wherever you go, commit to this. This is why you are here. Number two, why am I holding back? (laughs) Good question. Jesus is with us and for us. He's only calling us to Bible reading and obedience, things things we should want to do anyway as Christians, right? We should want to read our Bibles, and we should want to obey what's in the Bible. He's not asking us even to enroll in a, a level 501 course. In his school, there's just always 101. Basic Bible reading, basic Bible obedience, so why would I hold back from that? Why would I not give myself fully to the mission of the Lord to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And finally, what do I need? Well, we've already answered this, didn't we? A Bible. If you don't have one, we give them away every Sunday. Uh, see the ushers at the table out back? We'll happily give you a Bible. We want the Bible in every home and more than that, in every heart. Well, all you need is a Bible and to know how to read. You don't have to have to read good right? Just read. A few lines of the Bible will often require a lifetime to obey. So you don't have to drink in gallons, get sips even, and do that with somebody. That's all you need to do. And we will be on mission together as the Lord has called us to be. As a church, again, we don't do fancy and slick. We try to do basic and faithful really well. I do basic and faithful really well. We've learned that being basic and being faithful will occupy us the rest of our lives. We've also learned that making disciples moves us pretty far along this spectrum, doesn't it? See how efficient God is? You commit to doing one thing, you find yourself doing many. If we would be faithful to make disciples, he will be faithful to carry us along the continuum. Of growing in his mission. So let's end with a final question. Who will you disciple? Who will you disciple? So I don't encourage you to pray about that this week. Pray about that before next Sunday. And before next Sunday, invite someone to read the Bible with you. Could be a next door neighbor, could be a coworker, um, maybe it's an adult child or a parent or friend. Or somebody you met on the metro? Who will you invite to read the Bible with you and to grow in obedience with? Do that and watch how God takes doubters and does the extraordinary. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we thank you for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for saving us, we thank you for giving us eternal life, we thank you for the hope of heaven, a guaranteed, sure hope. And we thank you that you have chosen to use us in your mission, to bring all the nations to you in worship. And We thank you, Lord, that you've made that simple to do, not always easy, but simple to do, armed with your word, armed with faith, even while doubting. We need only to read your word and obey your word and help others to do so, and you will bring the entire globe beneath your rule, your loving, gracious, eternal, life-giving rule. So help us to be faithful, help us to do the basics, and then magnify your glory through it, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.